Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's July 2nd, 2018. And joining me, uh, Jonathan B. Last and Michael Warren of the Weekly Standard. We're now officially in the second half of 2018. We have survived the first half of 2018. That is actually in the books, gentlemen. So thanks for joining me. Time is, uh, uh, well, I don't know. I, I, I was thinking about this the oh. other day because of how quickly 2018 is passing. It's like, I remember thinking, like at the end of 2016, being like, oh, well, of course, 2017 will be better. And then at the end of 2017, it's like, oh, well, at least we'll have 2018. It just, I, it's like these these years just keep, uh, like everything keeps not just getting worse, but yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, but that's a comforting thought, don't you think, Jonathan, that just so you know that that, that it will get worse. That that. <laughs> It's one of my favorite. So Office Space, the movie Office Space is full yeah. of great gags. But one of my favorite is when Ron Livingston explains that, you know, so he says, you know, look, today is the worst day of my life. And every day I have is even worse than that. So every day you see me, you are seeing me on the worst day of my life. So let's inaugurate. Seriously. Not really. But seriously, let's inaugurate the second half of 2016 by talking about an alleged piece of legislation known as the FART Bill. Michael he- Warren. Yeah, it's the it's the U.S. Fart Act, uh, and uh, that's that's not just being vulgar. It's apparently the United States Fair and Reciprocal Trade Act. Uh, this is we should point out this is all draft legislation um, leaked apparently to Jonathan Swan uh, over at Axios, the White so House. Someone leaked there. the fart. Yeah, someone someone leaked it, and I, I, I said that, not Jonathan. So, so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, I think. So, so part of me just kind of went immediately into conspiracy theory and was like, "This is somebody pulling Jonathan Swan's leg," and it and it very well may be uh, a sort of a more serious version of that, which is somebody's leaking this uh, this out in order to kill it. Um, it's essentially a, a bill um, that the president apparently ordered uh, to be written up, a draft bill um, that would uh, negate the United States's involvement in uh, a number of World Trade Organization. Uh, agreements and practices, and uh, and 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 that and and that is believable. I think um, the 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 name but of it. Who though, named it? The name of it, though, su- suggests that maybe somebody's having, um, uh, uh, you know, having too much of a good time so, over there at the White House. I don't know. Or, or that, or they didn't notice it. Actually, my 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 dad was a World War II veteran. Always told me the story that you know some genius in the army came up with the idea of you know he he was he was serving in italy um establishing a headquarters known as you know supreme headquarters italian theater <laughs> until somebody raised their hand at the back hey guys do you know what that no you really don't want to do that but supreme headquarters italian theater always stuck in my mind and i'm guessing the same kind of mentality was behind uh, the fart bill I, I suppose so. I mean, look. I mean, this is this is a common uh, reason uh, in White Houses and and in um, and in uh, other other parts of politics of leaking these types of things, right? It's it's important that it's a draft bill. It's 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 important to realize that uh, nobody on the Hill seems to know anything about it. This may just be an outlet, a way for uh, somebody in the White House who realizes how sort of um, uh, uh, stupid, really, this 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 idea would be, is trying to get it out there to get it killed. Um, but I just don't, I don't know if, I mean, this is the core of Donald Trump's view yeah, of this, trade. This is real, right? I mean, this right. is it's, real, it's real. the president does want to blow up WTO. Right. So even, I, so in, in on this, I think it's really interesting. 
Um, we saw Wilbur Ross over the weekend, the uh, labor secretary, or excuse me, the uh, commerce secretary, um, uh, sort of coming out defending uh, Trump as Canada releases these uh, these new retaliatory tariffs, and uh, and I guess there's Peter Navarro who I've written a lot about for the Weekly Standard, um, and those three, with the, you know, including the president, they're kind of it when it comes to. You know, the White House, the administration, Republicans in Washington, they uh, uh, everybody else is really, I think, in their core opposed to these new tariffs, um, to this general uh, viewpoint that the president has um, that uh, that tariffs are the way to go in order to get better trade deals. And um, he's he is so much on an island on this. Um, it seems to me as just another data point, this 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 leak of this draft bill, uh, trying to point to the fact that there are a lot of people around the president who think it's a bad idea and they're trying to do everything they can to stop it. The uh, the Canadians have gone ahead with their tariffs, so we're actually going to start to see how this works out in, in real time. I find it interesting, all the stories from around the, the country picking up on uh, little, uh, well, little, I mean, uh, you know, different industries how they're being impacted in, um, you know, maybe somewhat unexpected ways or certainly, you know, unintended consequences of this legislation. But uh, the Canadians are certainly not backing off, are they? No. And why should they? I mean, this well, is I should, huh? the, 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 smaller. At, well, and at this point, I mean, you you know that this is not simply as a lot of Republicans have been sort of trying to argue, uh, uh, oh, this is this is just a negotiate negotiating tactic on behalf of Trump. He really is, you know, you hear this from like Larry, the Larry Kudlow's of the White House, um, that this is a negotiating tactic and he doesn't really believe, it. no, he actually does believe in all of this stuff. And somebody like Peter Navarro, um, a gadfly in the sort of trade economics world, um, really does believe that tariffs in and of themselves are a, are a good and that they can help bring back I mean, this sort of this weird voodoo trade economics, it will help bring back all of this wealth back into the United States, and then we will um, have all this great manufacturing. Well, of course, American manufacturers are also pulling back because all, all of these all of these tariffs are affecting them. We talked about Harley Davidson and all the others. Um, it, it is it, this is like a this is exactly how trade wars happen, and and they don't end very well. Yeah, well, most people have forgotten the last big trade war. I mean, you know, what, what percentage of Americans uh, would n be able to identify Smoot-Hawley? Okay, Jonathan, I, I, I was going to get into the, the whole Supreme Court issue, and maybe this is a back backdoor way of doing it, but uh, I'm in New York right now. And by the way, it's 104 degrees here in, in New York, which is absolutely crazy, because you know what it's like here with the concrete and lack of wind and the route? Is that, <sighs> but it, it, it occurs to me, and uh, bear with me for a second, because I wrote a book called How the Right Lost Its Mind. It occurred to me in the last week that the left is going through what can only be described as a political and ideological nervous breakdown, that between the Supreme Court nomination and dealing with, with immigration issues, you're having some of the craziest ideas that, frankly, I have heard in generations that are not from the right. I generally ignore the left, figuring that's not my problem at, at, at the moment. But a lot of this kind of has a familiar feel to it. So Democrats, one after another, embracing the idea of abolishing ICE, which the president tweeted out, hey, keep that up because that's going to be a political loser. And he's absolutely right about that. It's like, seriously, if you want 
to stand up and say, hey, let's blame this law enforcement agency rather than the, than the, uh, the, 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 the policies of the president. Perfect thing to do. If you also want to make it very easy to have the Republicans characterize you as being for open borders, absolutely call for the abolition of the enforcement agency. The second idea is one that we haven't heard seriously talked about since the 19 freaking 30s. Democrats openly, or at least some folks, talking about a court packing scheme. Well, you know, if the Republicans actually, you know, succeed in flipping the Supreme Court, we need to add a bunch of justices next time. Of course, Franklin Roosevelt talked about that in the late 30s, and he was rejected by his own party. But these are, you know, to put a the technical term on it, these are these are batshit crazy ideas, Jonathan. Yeah, they are. Uh, I mean, I, I'd make two points about this. The first is this highlights the level of toxicity within the Democratic Party. So the, we are here because of choices the Democratic Party made, right? I mean, this is the, they decided to blow up the nuclear option and destroy the filibuster in order to pass Obamacare, despite the fact that they were warned repeatedly by people who were pretty sensible, like, you know, like, I'm not even saying like, people like us, but like the Washington Post editorial page, saying that uh, it is madness to think that at some point in the very near future, you won't, the shoe won't be on the other foot and you won't be faced with a point where you really want the filibuster. Uh, and people like Ezra Klein said, you know, screw it, we want to do it, we want Obamacare. And at this moment, they are faced with the consequences of their actions and their choices. And instead of retrenching and having this be a real come to Jesus moment where they think try to rethink what brought them here, their response is to go to even more norm breaking and to to start floating the idea pretty seriously about how they want to pack the court. I, I I mean this seriously. I would be surprised if there would be a Democratic candidate for the presidential nomination in twenty twenty who is not for single payer health care, packing the court and essentially open borders. I mean, oh I, I really goodness. think these three things, you simply won't be able to be competitive in the Democratic primary if you aren't willing to embrace those three things. Now, oh, maybe right. maybe they won't really pursue them, but mouthing those points is going to be part of the entrance fee to that race. I really do believe. That does not strike me as a winning formula. Well, but but here's this then. So Even against Donald Trump, that does conservatives not strike me as something spent, that's going to win over the hearts and minds of swing voters. But on the other hand, so conservatives have spent 30 years saying that we need to really present a conservative view to the voters, bold colors, not pale pastels, and that if we do that, if we just show them real conservatism, then voters will come uh -huh. around to our way of thinking. After the 2012 election, we had the Republican autopsy, which said, if we want to win the White House again, we've got to moderate our stances on immigration and stuff. And instead, we went with Donald Trump, who was the most, you know, the, the, no the most pastels. extreme, no pale pastels, no you know, a total extremist in lots of ways. And it is five of the last six presidential elections have been base turnout elections. Uh, it is not clear to me that just ipso facto going to a pure base turnout election in 2020 is is a losing formula for the Democrats. So, it might so, be, but I'm not so prepared you, to say it definitely would be. So you're saying we're basically into this downward spiral of of extremism and, and, and incivility. I want to go back to one of the points you made, though, about how predictable this was with the abolition of the filibuster and, and how people stood up and said, you know, uh, you know, Harry Reid, this is this is going to come back and bite you perhaps sooner than you think it's going to do it. Uh, that there used to be one of the fundamental democratic norms 
at least at one time, maybe maybe I'm being nostalgic here, was that you always would govern with at least an eye toward the time in the future, probably the near future, when you would not be in power. And therefore, you wouldn't change procedures that could be turned uh, against you by the next administration or the next Congress. That's something that has been completely forgotten, where everybody's basically saying, we're going to do whatever it takes to win right now. And uh, if the other side does it, we'll scream bloody murder, but then we'll do it to them and we'll just double it up. I, I think there, uh, Will Ron over at CBS uh, write, writes opinion columns wrote a few months ago uh, about this idea that both parties and sort of both ideological sides um, seem to act as if uh, as if it's a flight ninety three election all the yep. time, as if their mm-hmm. backs are up against the wall, and this is sort of the last moment. Um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure why that is. I think there's um, so much. I mean, you can go really, you know, sort of back and, and, and deep a little bit and look at sort of global trends, whether it's globalization of economics, um, the sort of uh, the, the feeling of uncertainty post uh, Cold War and the sort of post 9-11 realm where just there's all this uncertainty about the, the, the future of the world and uh, the retirement of the baby boomers and all this other stuff. There's like there's all this sort of to use a terrible Silicon Valley term, disruption going on. And I don't think either party has sort of uh, come to come to grips with that. Either side has come to grips with that. So the response seems to be um, act as if this is the last moment in any, in, in any sort of give, any uh, uh, not even compromise, just right, sort of sure. moderation uh, is in some way admitting defeat. I, um, I, I, I think that's part of psychologically what's going on, why well, we're not also seeing... Also, the, the hyper-tribalism of politics. And I was at a forum last week where it, I, I, my, my takeaway was is that everybody is treating politics like it's a cartoon now. Where, you know, speaking of bright pastels, it, that, that if you are a, a, a Republican conservative, you look at the left as somebody that hates America, that believes that America is irredeemably racist and sexist and needs to be destroyed. And if you are a liberal uh, Democrat, you're looking at uh, at good conservatives as people who want to, you know, take us back when women were all barefoot and pregnant, were, you know, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and basically fascist. And, and if you paint in those colors, then, of course, every challenge, you know, needs to be you know, addressed at the highest possible volume with the most veins popping out of your head. And I do think that we're, we're starting – there's also this, this, this weird phenomenon where – even though I think most people are relatively centrist, and feel free to disagree with me here, that that the we've seated the political dialogue to the most extreme people, you know, the the, the drunks at the end at either end of the bar. And I think abortion, moving on to the Supreme Court, I think abortion's a classic example. I think that there is a broad middle that is neither purely pro-life or purely pro-choice, where there's a kind of a compromise, but you never will get that because you have the 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 adamant purist pro-lifers on one side, and I tend to be pretty pro-life. And then you have the adamant, you know, pro-abortion under any circumstance up until the moment of birth and maybe even beyond on the other side. And they're the ones that drive the debate. So the people would go, I think abortion's immoral, but we should allow it, you know, under these circumstances or in the first 12 weeks or something. They've been completely erased from our political dialogue. Yeah, and the polling supports what what you just said. I mean, this is when you look at the data, that is basically what America thinks. Uh, but this is the nature of a binary system, right? I mean, this is where we're, we're headed. And I don't, 
you know, I'm always the Eeyore guy on the show who's like, yeah, we're screwed and it's getting worse. Um, but we're screwed and it's getting worse. I mean, I don't think there are a whole lot of examples in the history of political thought where one side of a binary political system becomes sort of toxic in its insanity and the other side responds by becoming more reasonable and more rational. Right. I mean, it, it's always it's always a vicious cycle. When one well, party breaks, they both break. And well, it, it looks to me like this is essentially where we are. I mean, think about the the Trump is Nazi stuff. Josh Barrow for Business Insider has a good good column up today. He is a pretty center left guy, yeah. right? Anti Trump. Uh, it it is now impossible to be anti Trump without calling Trump a literal, as Judd Apatow put it, Nazi. Like, which is insane. Literally. Like, you you know, Trump is not a Nazi. You you could oppose Donald Trump all the way up to including be- the belief that he should be impeached without thinking that he's a Nazi. That is not the Nazism is not the only prerequisite for, for opposing the president. And yet the Democrats are talking themselves into that in ways which I, 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 toxic is the word I keep coming back to because it's the only one I can really think of you know, to that, describe the mindset. An, I'm trying to think where I was reading about this. This, that somebody said this is an, sort of an example of the of the failure of our moral reasoning that we do actually don't have a, a a way of of describing good and evil without going to the the Nazi thing so that every everything you know goes from you know I don't like it so therefore it, it, it is Hitler because we don't have any other guidelines any other handholds you know for you know moral judgment other than that but I mean you saw what happened to John Podoritz last week I mean he was on on social media and basically making the point look whatever you think about the separation of families at the border and I think it was cruel and horrific it is literally not the same as the Holocaust and just said you know please don't you know let's let's you know at least have some sort of distinction here let's not water down the significance of the of the final solution and of course he was flamed exactly as you'd predict in this particular yeah. environment well, this is this is the wages of relativism Right. I mean, when you you have a culture that is soaked in philosophical relativism, uh, everybody is constantly groping for an absolute that we can all agree on. And the only absolute that everybody can agree on is Nazism. And so when anybody... You know, you can't just make the point that somebody is a very bad person who should be opposed and all their policies are deleterious and yada, yada. They, the only way you can say something and believe that everybody will understand you and agree with you is by the Na- using the Naples Ultra. Well, let's go back to your uh, your pessimistic view of that we're in this downward spiral and e- each side gets more extreme. If that's true, we're about to find out very, very soon with the Supreme Court debate, uh, which is going to you know take a an already um, lit year in terms of political division, and it's going to hyper you know hypercharge or whatever one you use you want to uh, word you want to use. Um, I was listening to a number of interviews, as I'm sure you were as well, with uh, Susan Collins, a Republican senator from Maine, who is clearly one of the, if not the, pivotal vote in this and it's interesting to me that that different people are interpreting what she said in different ways so michael can you give me some sense of where susan collins is you know one school of thought seems to say that that she's 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 in denial she doesn't think that gorsuch would vote to overturn roe versus versus wade she doesn't think that john roberts would and therefore you know she's kind of you know you know signaling that she's probably going to vote for the nominee other sound bites make it sound like, you know, if there is somebody who is, you know, openly hostile to Roe versus Wade, then she will clearly not vote to confirm. So do you give me your some sense of the, you know, 
if, if there's such a thing as you know Collinsology at the moment, uh, the, the, the <laughs> Collins watch. Uh, well, uh, having just really watched her interviews um, uh, and, and knowing a little bit about the decisions she made, you mentioned Neil Gorsuch, who she voted for. Um, I read what she said over the weekend. I, I don't have the exact terms, uh, mm-hmm. the exact uh, quote that what she said, but it's it was a pretty broad and big window here. She said she doesn't want anybody, as you said, somebody who's uh, hostile to Roe versus Wade. She wants somebody who has- I think ris- openly hostile. Openly hostile, so, right? Yeah. Um, uh, very, uh, uh, the, the other line was something something to the effect of uh, somebody who has an appreciation for precedence in law. I mean, those are, that's some, that's a pretty big uh, hole to drive through there. Um, and, and look, I'm very skeptical that even someone like Susan Collins, I may be proven wrong, but I'm pretty skeptical that Susan Collins is going to end up voting no on Trump's nominee. And here's why. This is not something that is happening in a vacuum where Donald Trump is just you know, picking, you know, picking the, the, the lawyer he likes in his office, um, which actually the previous Republican president did uh, for a brief time in Harriet Myers. Um, this is something that is actually unlike every other decision made exactly. in the Trump administration has been sort of controlled in, in a positive way from the beginning. And, and yes, we know about all about the list that Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society put together. But Don McGahn, the White House counsel, is working very closely with Mitch McConnell. It's Mitch McConnell we're talking about here. Uh, he has a better grip on his conference than maybe any other leader, uh, maybe Harry Reid, you can include in that. Any other leader of either house, of either party, um, the nominee. I'm, I'm very, uh, uh, I, I'm very willing to put myself out there and say the nominee will be somebody who uh, Susan Collins will vote for, and that will be, that that will be almost a sort of unspoken requirement of uh, whoever the president nominates. And there's some evidence to that. Is the president, uh, you know, called over and wanted to meet with her and Lisa Murkowski separately? They decided to go over together. But in terms of the advice and consent, uh, my guess is that they will run these names by by them first, as the, as they should. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a very uh, we. I think this was done with Gorsuch, and there, there's a sort of a meme on the liberal left who are so, as we've been talking about, so sort of outraged about um, about not just uh, this uh, Kennedy retiring, but they're still mad about uh, uh, the Senate uh, Mitch McConnell blocking Merrick Garland okay. from they the seat. Right. No. They'll never get over that. This is like the new 2000 election, you know, was stolen by, by Bush. Um, it, but it, there's this um, there's this idea that um, Charlie, I'm sorry, I just completely lost my train of thought. No, there. no, but there are no. I, I, I think I know where you were going on all of this. You know that this is this is just the the, the Armageddon, and the, 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 this will not be a reasoned, you know, um, you know, a, a process like we had in the past where. We were not determining. I'm old enough to remember when we actually, you know, thought that if you nominated somebody who was qualified, who had judicial temperament, who had the credentials, then that person would go through, barring some massive scandals. Let me ask you this: this question, Jonathan, because there's been a lot of talk about the fact that there are women on this list, and I probably should disclose that my ex-wife is on the longer list, probably not the short list. Would it make a substantial substantive difference in the politics, not just on the politics of this, if Donald Trump, who's been accused of being misogynist for so long, if he named a woman to the Supreme Court? I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the politics of this are the politics of this, and it's all the power dynamics. I think it I think it probably makes it harder when you get to the hearing stage to bork 
a woman over abortion than it is to bork a man over abortion. Um, right. I mean, this is uh, ultimately at the end of the day, whoever is nominated mm-hmm. is almost certainly going to pass. And so the, the ultimate outcome of this, I think, is not going to wind up being determined by this. Uh, Do you agree with that, Michael, that, that whoever gets nominated is going to pass, even though Republicans have really only one vote to spare? Yes, I do, but I okay. I think what will happen if, and I think Amy Coney Barrett is the most likely if uh, uh, she's at the top of the list in terms of the the list of uh, of possible women justices. She's she's the one where the dogma lives loudly, right? That's right. She has seven children. She's a she's a Catholic. She is she will be it, the 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 character assassination that will happen if she is nominated. Um, it, 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 I agree, it will be harder to to bork her because of just mm-hmm. the general uh, numbers of this and what I described as 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 McConnell hold on his conference but it will be it will be ugly it will be clarence thomas times a, 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 a thousand yeah but the potential backlash is worse for democrats i think, you think it, so? i think it puts the democrats on more dangerous ground as they try to because don't forget i mean they have a requirement to their base i mean they 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 have two 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 goals here in their opposition, one of which is to try to actually oppose in ways which I think most reasonable Democratic officeholders understand they have no real power to do, <laughs> but the other of which is to appease the base voters and make right. sure that people aren't going to get primaried and they can keep raising money. And so this is something we've seen throughout the Trump administration where, you know— you, there are times when actual Democratic interests require them to maybe work with Trump on something, but the interests of the Democratic base require them to oppose Trump and all things Trump. Um, they may feel as though they have to say things which wind up hurting them down the line with women voters. Uh, who knows? I, maybe maybe none yeah, of that will it, happen. It, it, maybe it, it won't come to pass. It's so hard to predict all of this because these things take on their own dynamics. My, my experience has been, we'll see whether this is true, is that uh, – Sometimes the the left will save its uh, its darkest vitriol for people they regard as selling out the cause. So, in other words, you know, the black conservative is in for uh, you know some of the, some of the worst uh, attacks. A woman who is poised to overturn a woman's right to choose, you know, would be. Um, you know, would be rendered radioactive. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm torn between the optics being very positive, but also understanding how the dynamics here, I, I don't think are going to fundamentally change. And of course, if it is uh, Judge Barrett, you do have this, there's no ambiguity about her Catholicism um, and, and her approach to some of these issues. So whether or not she takes a position on Roe versus Wade, I mean, I think we kind of know where she's coming down on some of this, right? Well, yeah, maybe. But on the other hand, no. We have a piece that uh, by Jack Goldsmith, which will probably be live on the site by the time this podcast goes out, uh, where he cautions both the right and the left, saying things are way more contingent than you think. Uh, there are only three areas of Kennedy's jurisprudence that were actually all that liberal anyway. They were affirmative action, same-sex marriage, and abortion. And when you look at each of the three of those going forward, uh, especially when it comes to abortion, uh, it seems very unlikely that the conservatives will even try to overthrow Roe. Uh, I'm sorry, overturn Roe. Uh, they are much more likely to try to nibble around the edges at it and do sort of you know little bits of rollback here and there. Uh, and at the same time, at the state court level, uh, liberals, wherever they control state courts, are likely to try to start pushing through protections, which then fence in what can be done at the federal level. Uh, so, and and also that everything is contingent. You know, when when 
the left was convinced that they were about to flip the Supreme Court for a generation 20 months ago, and it didn't work out that way. It was and right there. It, it was it, right there for them. Right? It could, for all we know, 20 months from now, uh, or 24 months from now, we could be in a position where the left could flip the court for a generation. Like, you know, we're talking about a bunch of people who are old and you never know who's going to win a presidential election. 80,000 votes go this way or 80,000 votes go that way. You have a different winner. Um, the weird apocalyptic uh, freak out that the left is having now is both insane and counterproductive, not just for them, but for everybody. Like this I, is, I, I completely agree. And, and, and the damage that this is doing to the institution of the Supreme Court, you know, since we've been talking about damaged institutions, maybe it's too late to fix it. You know, the total politicization of our of our judicial system. But, you know, you mentioned those three areas. Uh, affirmative action, gay marriage, and and abortion. Uh, I I could see the most dramatic switch in the court on the issue of affirmative action. I cannot see them rolling back gay marriage in any way whatsoever. However, um, probably slowing down the expansion. Probably good news on religious liberty. The row one. I I. I I know you're not going to be able to convince many people on the left of this, but I generally agree with the argument that the judge Justice Roberts has shown himself to be very institutionally conservative, and it really seems to be a reach to think that that he would preside over something that would be um, that disruptive. Um, and again, I, I am not a fan of Roe versus Wade. I am pro-life. But overturning that would be a legal and political earthquake, and that doesn't doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that Justice Roberts wants to have happen under his watch. I totally agree, and in fact, I you know I'm a pretty uh, Shiite pro-lifer uh, myself, <laughs> and I I got to say I don't want Roe v. Wade flat overturned until the consensus in the country has moved there. Um, like I mean, that's There's a recipe for delegitimacy. I mean, it's, it's really about, important yeah. to move the consensus first and then move the law. This is because when you look at the opposite of that, which is what happened with gay, with with same sex marriage, uh, the the political and cultural tensions and and bad feeling uh, that emanates from when it happens when the court goes and gets out in front of the the rest of the the country is really deleterious. It's really bad, and uh, I think actually pro lifers have done a great job over the last forty years actually moving uh, consensus on this and they've fought the teaching aspect of the law and I think on most of the merits uh, they've actually won you know you've seen public opinion moving in the way of the pro-life and if it continues to do that then the law should follow that and I, I'm confident that we're going to win that in the and, long run and you could point to Roe versus Wade as sort of the ground zero of that of the beginnings of a of a mature pro-life movement. Yeah. I mean, this. I mean, yeah. in in a way, overturning Roe v. Wade would be a would be sort of the have the mirror effect that Roe v. Wade initially. Yeah, no, totally, at this point. totally I, agree. I agree. Totally agree. And I, and the truth is, I I, I great point. I, I believe that this is if you talk to most serious pro-life activists, this is basically where they are anyway. And uh, again, the fear mongering of you know, oh, we're going to be at the Handmaid's Tale by 2019 is well, and, insane. And it also sort of misunderstands the where sort of conservative originalist jurisprudence is mm-hmm. um wh- that, that there's this there's this kind of um a, a projection from liberals you get a lot of as well they really want it uh, uh to be overturned so that they will find a way to overturn it um yeah. but i mean you have to listen you have to be around uh you know sort of conservative judicial judicial and legal types to know that that's just not how 
these people think uh, at at all, and and you know, it, it is it is such a projection. I think the way that uh, sort of liberal jurisprudence has been over the last you know century, yeah. um, and, and to, to sort of uh, understand uh, where where yeah. these people are coming from. I, I I think you're completely right on that. You know, I just go back on this: how the pro life movement has made some tremendous strides. One of the one of the things back in the 70s, I remember thinking um, no one ever changes their mind about abortion, you know, that we're all stuck in place here. And I think that the assumption was that society, as it became more libertarian and individualistic, um, would embrace the abortion culture um, and that the pro-life movement would would wither away. In fact, the, the opposite has happened. I am struck, I am amazed by looking at some of the poll numbers of younger people suggesting that many of them are, 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 are pro-life, pro more pro-life than other generations. Perhaps because they kind of realize that their lives are somewhat contingent, that uh, that they know brothers or sisters or you know other people who you know <laughs> were the victims of, of another choice. And technology the, as well, right? We know technology we, is the key yes. thing because it put a face and a humanity on uh, on that unborn child. And, and who I mean, would have some who, of the rhetoric of the seventies just would not fly these days. And who would have thought that that sort of individualistic culture, which I uh, would argue is still with us, um, would actually turn around on pro-choicers? Because um, so much, I think, of what appeals to uh, uh, younger people on, on the sort of pro-life thing is the fact that it's an individual person uh, who who has as many rights uh, as 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 anybody else. So I think that's the the, the, the again shows sort of the irony and and the way that things are sort of unpredictable in the way uh, these things move. Well, but I think it is a fundamental conservative value, and I don't think it's being squishy on the issue. To go back to Jonathan's point, though, is that is that pro-lifers have been changing hearts and minds, have been making young women make different choices for now for a generation. And if that continues, then I think the change in the law, I think, will be much more organic, whereas if the court handed this down, it would be such a shock to the system that I think it might uh, generate that backlash. The only unknown we have about the Supreme Court decision is, uh, you know, when we see the poll numbers on Roe versus Wade, this is not an issue in which uh, I think Republicans uh, have the wind at their back right now, but we will see. Hey, today's uh, Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Quip. You know, the truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong. We don't do it for long enough. We forget to change the brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What makes Quip different? Well, for starters, it's an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes while still packing the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. They have a, it has a built-in timer. The Quips uh, toothbrushes, they have a built-in timer that helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes. Now, if you're somebody like me who's always impatient, moving fast, that's kind of helpful because otherwise I'd probably do it for 15 you know, seconds at a time. And next, Quips subscription plans are for your health, not just for your convenience. They give you, they deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, unsticks to use as a cover for travel anytime, you know, wherever you take your teeth, which I assume is pretty much everywhere, right? And finally, everybody loves Quip. They're on Oprah's O-List. They were named one of Time's Best Inventions, and it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. So here's the deal. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, You'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash standard. 
Okay, gentlemen, so um, I've been in this building all day here in downtown Manhattan. What else do I need to know about uh, what's happening today on the uh, first show of the second half of 2018? LeBron. LeBron is exactly what I was going to say. Going to Los Angeles, taking his talents to the City of Angels. And and (laughs) Cleveland is used to being jilted, so are they taking it okay? I We have a very magnanimous piece from our nice colleague, Rachel Larimore, who basically is siding with LeBron over Cavaliers management, which sounds to me like Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> but Woody, I, I don't know. I, I You know, when we taped the substandard today and we had a conversation about LeBron and I view him as an er professional wrestling villain. Yeah, you know, like he has approached his entire uh, NBA career as if he were a professional wrestling star, with very con- very conscious heel turns and face turns at, at specific moments. I think this is another heel turn from him. You know, and, y- and yet he is the greatest of all time. Yeah, but you're so jaded. No, oh, oh, come on, you're so come jaded. off of it. He is not the greatest of all time. Go. Can I say you're it's so jaded about this, JV? LeBron has a 17 year old son out in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. This is a family. This is a guy. And in all seriousness, he has matured. Uh, uh, remarkably uh, in the however many years he's been playing professional basketball. He started when he was a kid, when he was a teenager. You're throwing all of that uh, money uh, at that young of an age. I know I would not uh, uh, be where he is right now. I think he's making some a, a mature decision. He wants to rebuild uh, a, a storied franchise. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest LeBron James fan. I still think Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time, but uh, it's good to see him Give the old college try. I was teasing okay. Rachel this afternoon or this morning, rather, and I, I said to her, uh, I said, well, this is great news for LeBron because now he won't have to choke in the NBA finals anymore. Now he can just choke in like the Western Conference second round. <laughs> wow. There's there's a lot. There's a lot packed in there, isn't there? There's a. Uh... So you guys are big uh, fireworks fans for the 4th of July? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, are I, you? Are you? Are you? If I see, I grew up in in Jersey where fireworks are essentially fully illegal. Uh, I mean, if you have even a sparkler in your backyard, the police might show up and arrest you and your parents and your extended family. And now that I live in the Confederacy, uh, <laughs> like people are setting off full on, you know, like the mortars that go a hundred yards up into the air out oh, in yeah. our cul-de-sac every year. You, so, you have no idea what I've been doing the last couple of years. What have you been doing? Of, like, go to this place called Uncle Sam's and it is like, it, it, it's like an arms factory. And you, you, the first thing you go is, I cannot believe you could actually buy this stuff. I mean, this is serious stuff and big shells. And I would go and we would have a competition, um, and uh, you know, with, with some of the neighbors, I always lost because I think I think the neighbor must spend ten thousand dollars or something like that. I mean, I th- I thought I had I thought I had uh, armed up, uh, but last last year I also found out that you know that that sulfur a uh, sulfur burn, yeah, that that, that, that did hurts. you oh I, did I you get burned you. up bad? You know, it's funny mm-hmm. in my in my cul-de-sac we <laughs> we used to have both a Secret Service agent and an FBI agent, and so we thought that we were okay because we would always be setting off like way illegal fireworks even by Virginia standards. Because <laughs> my neighbors would drive up to Breezewood in Pennsylvania <laughs> on the other side of the border on July three, and stock up, and yet somehow whenever the police came. The Secret Service agent and FBI agent were the first ones to leave. They'd be like, no, we're out of here. <laughs> Jeez, I wonder why. Gentlemen, have a great 4th of July and enjoy, enjoy the holiday week. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>